Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm excited to get into April's Mental Health Book Club, which is going to be on Jamel Hill's memoir called Uphill. And we're going to be discussing uh, mental health themes along the way. And so to hop right on in, uh, I want to get initial reactions. Our uh, book club is very small today. We only have uh, one participant so far. Nita, what were your first uh, takeaways from this book? Um, initially, my takeaways were uh, I knew a, a good amount about Jamel Hill before reading, but I didn't know the extreme of what she had been through from an early standpoint. Um, the fact that she was able to even overcome a lot of what she saw growing up to make it through college, through journalism ranks, to be where she is now is crazy. Yeah, he definitely set the tone for a lot of people that will come after her. But uh, it has been a very interesting week so far. Probably one of my favorites we've read so far in the book club. Yes, and like I said last time, I'm I'm very excited to um, get like another Black author into this book club. So really what sold this book to me, and I'm pretty sure you had recommended this book like, and brought it to my attention. But what got me was when I read the description of the book and uh, it just talked about how so she's a, and I'm not even a sports person, listeners to this podcast. So if you know me, you know, I don't really know much about sports. It didn't matter to me when I saw, okay, this is an ESPN uh, reporter and kind of what brought this uh, obviously memoir or really story to the forefront and the shifting in Jamel Hill's career was the her calling out Donald Trump uh, on white supremacy and the backlash that that had and how that kind of, of course, ended up or she ended up leaving ESPN. But after, of course, we know that man uh, is very temperamental and gets um, his feelings hurt very easily. Also, side note, what a great time to be, you know, talking about this and the week following uh, all of the goddamn indictment charges. Uh, but anyway, he basically clapped back and said, you know, oh, ESPN is getting too liberal and this and that. And it caused uh, smoke for Jamel Hill and her her livelihood and her job. So um, she she ended up leaving. But I thought what was interesting with that, um, and we'll we'll get into a lot of these different things, um, especially since this conversation is between two people of color. I think we have that unique space to do that. But the interesting thing that I found was, of course, we're going to get into Jamel Hill's relationship with her mom throughout this book club as well. There's just so much to unpack. But right from the jump in the introduction, we're hearing about that Black resilience mindset. And so I want to share a little bit about that. Um, so uh, I had set the tone like, okay, so Jamel Hill is going through this controversy with having called out Trump and ESPN is saying, well, you violated a social media policy because you're criticizing a, a politician and all of this stuff. But here's how her mom reacted, quote, but when I told my mother that I wanted to leave, I didn't get the reaction I expected at all. I wanted my mother's full support. Eventually that came, but it wasn't there at the onset. I didn't like my job at as a sports center host. And when I told her why, it felt like she didn't hear me at all. We don't let anyone run us off our job, she said, using an ain't that right girl kind of tone. But I wasn't in a kikiing mood. 
Of course, I expected my mother to be practical because Black folks usually don't have the luxury of walking away from jobs like the one I had. I just didn't expect that she would not only ignore my feelings, but also accuse me of being brainwashed. For my mother to suggest I was a puppet was not only hurtful, it was outright offensive. I was keenly aware that a deeper and larger struggle was taking place in this country, that that was way beyond my verbal spat with Trump. Black people were fighting every damn day for survival, freedom, and empowerment. As much as Trump inspired racists to be unrepentant, the feelings he stoked had been there since the country was born. I felt intrinsically connected to that struggle because it's impossible to be Black in America without feeling that way, unless you actively and willfully choose not to. I wanted to use my platform to make things better, not because I felt pressure to do so, but because it was my duty. Uh, and then she went on to say, my mother, however, interpreted my passionate pushback against her view of my situation as anger that stemmed from something that extended beyond the current moment. She did not understand that almost nothing triggers me more than when people try to tell me who I am, end quote. And there was just so much in that, that, you know, of course, I'm, you know, me not being a sports person, and then I read the description of this book, but I see kind of what had happened to her and why, you know, because when you're reading a description of a book on like Goodreads or something, they only give like so much to like sell a book to you, you know, but all I needed to hear was she was fired from ESPN for calling Trump a white supremacist and the book was already ordered. But I like her. I, I identify with anybody who tries to use their platform um, to support uh, forward movement. So Nita, what were your thoughts on that? Um, I think coming out of the, the gate, I think the first paragraph that she writes, she talks about how her mother is telling her she's angry, challenged her to go to therapy, basically. And as we all know, uh, especially for the older African-American generation, therapy is looked down upon. Like, I didn't do that when I was young. You just sucked it up and did whatever you had to do. And I think <laughs> that's part of the problem. Like, it's that same thing. Her mom was like, I can't believe you're going to leave this job over something like that. Whereas now, especially the younger generations, they're not going to stay at a job just because it seems like a good job. What are my benefits? What is this company doing for me? It shouldn't be one-sided. And I yep. think that's moving away from what was considered the norms of our parents. Our parents were like, you find a good job, you stay there, you retire. It was yep. no, uh, you can just leave because you're unhappy. Because they're going to tell yeah. you, we're all unhappy. And I think Ooh. being able to finally break those chains as the generations have shifted is a good thing. And we got a long way to go, but at least it's starting to happen. Yeah. So. Definitely. And I think through this first section, so uh, listeners to the podcast, we're going through chapters one through five of the book, if you're following along. But there's so many of uh, those like relatable experiences of just people of color. I think, you know, from the jump, I mean, literally from page one after the introduction, we're hearing about the poverty um, that she grew up in. I'm actually looking for it because you had mentioned the what triggered her to go to therapy she hasn't actually talked about the therapy yet so hey. i i imagine she's going to circle back to that but yeah that that last line of the quote that i shared is like nothing gets on my nerves more than when someone when someone tries to tell me who i am that right there that that line is so i think relatable for for me but for so many people especially people of color 
um, because we're constantly navigating a world where we're told what box we're supposed to fit in, how loud we're allowed to be, what we can look like, what we can sound like, what we can, you know, how we can exist, you know, and I just really felt that, like, that irritation. But also think of the the world we live in right now, this recession that we're in, like, uh, people are feeling very pinched, you know, and it's like, I know a lot of people hate their jobs. And it's like, some and when people know that you need the job more than and and how uh that power dynamic is on like oh you could be replaced and stuff like that they can treat you really shittily it's it's almost it's kind of like what we tell each other it's like oh don't let them run you off your job you know you better stay there stand your ground you know at what cost though i mean trauma i've had jobs before um that's why i work for myself but i've worked at agencies before where i'm literally closing the the door to my office popping a prescribed like you know benzodiazepine like clonazepam or something like that and just having a quiet panic attack in my office because of how bad the job you know life is not supposed to be like that i shouldn't have to seek mental health treatment to serve to literally cope with the thing that i need in order to financially survive in the world so her mom meant well but it, it was bad advice Oh, I think what really stood out to me reading this over this particular weekend. So the NCAA Women's Championship game was yesterday. Um, There's a young lady that plays for LSU named Angel Reese. Um, Mm, I've been seeing about that. Yeah. So she did a, a hand gesture that was made popular by John Cena that basically says, you can't see me. Mm hmm. She gets all type of flack for it. She has no class. She's too hood. She's too ghetto. She doesn't belong here. The commentators were going in on her. Go back a couple games. We have Caitlin Clark, who's a white white lady, does the same same thing, thing, the same taunting. And she's just passionate. She has heart. She's this. She's that. And it's like both of these young women are playing a sport that they love. They grew up playing. They're at, for some of them, probably the peak of their career because not everybody Mm -hmm. goes pro. Yeah. So you're going to tell me one's okay because she's the right color and the other one is ghetto mm-hmm. because she has brown skin. You yep. got to be kidding me. And she's so intelligent. Listening to her speak afterwards to call out the commentators like, you're only bothered by this because of the color of my skin. Mm. And you have so many people that are like trying to hide behind this cloak of and like the internet and be safe that are just racist and still trying to bait. Like you just have no class. and. Beyond that, you have a... I'm tired of respectability politics. I'm so so fucking tired of respectability politics. And for those listening who may not know what that means, it's basically uh, in which uh, usually folks of color have to exist or behave a certain way to warrant the respect and uh, dignity that everybody else gets. So... The white girl can do that and she's passionate or whatever. But when you're a black girl, you have the pressure on your back of, oh, you can't be ghetto. You can't be uh, annoyed. You can't clap back or something like that because you have to set an example for everyone else coming behind you. And you've been given a, a platform and you've been given an opportunity and stuff like that. And the the scales are so uneven. And it's really fucked up. So I've been seeing the 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 playbacks on social media where they're showing the side by side and things like that. It ain't nothing that we ain't used to. It's racism. Uh-huh. Period. Like, I, 
I'm so proud of the way she handled herself in the uh, post-game interview, though, and said, you know, I did this for the girls that look like me. I did this for the people that are coming after me. I did this for people who are in other professions, people that are not even talking about sports, where we have to be something else altogether. Like you said, Mm -hmm. we have to be better. We have to be 100 times better. We have to accept something just because. get a fraction as much. Exactly. So it it sucks. And we even had like Hall of Fame coach Don Staley. So when they lost, like the media was saying bad stuff about her teams and they were just saying, oh, those girls were so aggressive. They're playing a game. Like, why are you calling that? You're not saying that about the Iowa team. You're just saying that about South Carolina. And she basically had to say when you play defense. mm -hmm, She had to basically say, my team, we're not monkeys. We're not. We're not going trying to go to jail. We're not hard nosers. We're not this. We're playing a game, and you are not going to talk down to my team. Like mm. I've always been a Coach Don fan. I loved her for a long time. Uh, she played herself in 1992 and got all types of awards. Came mm-hmm. back, coached the Olympic team. She has the the power to do a lot. She has a great squad, and and they lost, and they handled it well. But I'm just mm. like, you can't have this double standards where you have the teams that are primarily white going about and having no type of bad energy going towards them because they're playing a game. This is what they're supposed to do. But the second is a team of primarily girls of color. You have an issue with them celebrating a win. Do you know how hard these young ladies work to get to this? Let mm. them enjoy it. Don't try yeah. to steal that from them. Yeah. So I think it was timely reading this book because I know Jamil probably has some very, very key points to make about the things we saw this weekend. Yeah. Which um this book is amazing. So uh I'm looking forward to getting deeper into some of the things she's experienced. And it's yeah. kind of interesting to know like some of the stuff she was talking about. I was at ESPN when it happened. Like I was working at ESPN while she was mm. going through some of this stuff. And I remember awesome. the way they were handling some of this stuff. And I'm just like, it's got to, you would hope things are changed by now, but they probably haven't. Mm, so, because no. the, the, if we're thinking of the margins, I mean, men versus women. And then on the totem pole, the black woman is bottom of the bottom, uh, according to white supremacy and, you know, patriarchy. But as we go through this section, there's plenty more, uh, I think, relatable things that I highlighted that uh, jumped out at me. Obviously, growing up in poverty, um, I, I saw several instances of that. I'll try to make some connections there. But on page two, um, one thing that really got me was, quote, because I basically grew up broke, I was conditioned to act broke, even when I wasn't actually broke, end quote. If that ain't my life, I am 30 years old. I I think in the past, I would say the past two years, I've really allowed myself to enjoy the fruits of my labor and not because I always snap into a survival mode. Like if push came to shove, I could go back to living like I did when I was in like as a teenager, like working all these like hours and like going to school and stuff like that. I could go back to the days where I worked all these jobs and went to college full time. Like I have it in me that survival like instinct, but being in a place in life where you have, like she said, she was making good money at ESPN and stuff like that. 
but she like the one of the switches in her house like one of the rooms was wired funny and instead of like getting it fixed she just you know like pulled the little chain on the ceiling fan so that um she didn't have to deal with the fan turning on when the light turned you know or something and i i can definitely relate with that because my first instinct is to go without or to um literally i'll i'll give an example um my accountant uh emailed me or yeah let me basically i sent all my stuff in they prepared my taxes for my business and my personal taxes and stuff and that number that came back that they said that i owe um the government um was steep and i choked um i think i threw my computer across the room and my first like that that survival instinct kicked in and i was like okay i've been making monthly payments on an upcoming like cruise uh vacation that we planned like last year right and my first instinct is oh i should cancel that and get my money back like that's where my mind goes is i should go without uh in a pinch like and so i i down to my core understand that and i had to share that because i think so many people um professionals right who grew up in less than you know favorable circumstances i know nita you talked about how you shouldn't be where you are today based on statistics and stuff i i know that with my upbringing and i think as we get into jamel's story and her mom and her mom's addiction like literally i feel like i'm reading my own story through this it's very relatable but it was almost an inspiration like i was like okay here's somebody who's really like made it and like made a platform for herself and she feels this way it just normalizes a lot of these experiences cuz sometimes like i've gone to you know like a, a therapist or i'll talk to somebody and people just don't get it i don't think there's certain people who can't get the where i say like yeah i just have a hard time like enjoying the fruits of my labor and they're like oh just uh be grateful or be in the moment or whatever i'm like no like i know what it's like to choose between food and utilities that it doesn't my brain isn't set up like this so um i just found that interesting did you have anything to add to that um i just keep seeing this sentence that she has in here it says during my childhood my mother was on and off welfare and never made more than eighteen thousand a year uh growing up i definitely know my mom probably didn't even make eighteen thousand. The problem was they would tell her, you know, you can't get any help because you made too much money. She's clearly below the poverty level, but you're telling her she can't get any help. And now looking at myself, like I'm probably making four times easily what my mom was making, trying to raise two kids. I don't have any kids. I'm not trying to do all this stuff, but like you, I feel like I don't want to spend money. I'm looking at stuff. People are like, oh, let's do that. How much is that going to cost me? They were like, you got it. Stop washing my pockets for me. Because as far as you know, I ain't got it. I don't have it. Because I'm trying to be prepared for this recession and everything we're coming mm -hmm. up on. And I'm just like, I just don't got it. And I don't feel bad saying it. And people are just mm -hmm. like, what do you mean? You're always at work. And I'm like, I'm almost, at, I'm always at work because I know what it's like to not have anything. Yep. Like, I know what it's like to have to move around because we got evicted. I know what it's like to, like, have the power shut off for a couple of days. And it's stuff mm -hmm. that most people that work with me would never know. If I said this at work, people would be so, like, in shock. They wouldn't know what to say to me. And it's just kind of like, this is a thing that a lot of people go through in this country. So I think the fact that she put this in a book kind of 
is a good thing that she was full, fully transparent about it. But yeah, I know it's certain things that I know might might break, and I'm just like, do I really need it? Do I really need it? Can I, like yeah. you said, can I make it work without it? This is why I learned how to change my own oil because I was like, I'm not paying somebody seventy five dollars to do an oil change, and I can go do it myself. They it's really do crazy. be charging a lot for these oil changes. It, when I first got a car, it was nineteen ninety nine mm-hmm. for an oil change, and and see, I I found I don't know if it's something about being over the threshold of thirty now. I keep finding myself saying, "Oh, when I was." such and such i don't think i'm like old but the cost of living has really upswinged and i'm trying to find the quote to add to that um because jamel had mentioned it somewhere and i may not have highlighted it oh here we go on page 20 she said creating generational wealth is an important goal for some families but creating generational liberty is even more vital I thought that was interesting, especially on the tail end of what you just said, Nita, about like basically having that internal of like, nah, I I can't ball so hard, you know, uh, because I know that things could get bad. But on the flip side of things, I think there are a lot of people who are living in a YOLO mindset. Um, and then when things get bad, they're like, oh, the sky is falling. And it's like, I, I just don't it's already hard enough to just like pay the bills that come in and stuff like that. But that fear of being caught slipping, you know, um, like I mentioned, you know, getting the tax bill from my accountant, which side note, the people who did the math definitely did it wrong because they did not include all of my business expenses. And I kept all of my receipts and I'm meticulous about it. So I told them to run it back and let me know when they fix it because it was too high. I said, this isn't going to work. You need to figure it out. But that, that even just like, uh, because I was joking, I was like, ah, I wanted to throw my computer across the room. Like that uh, fear of being pushed to the brink of we caught you slipping. The world doesn't give a fuck, especially about a person of color. The people who ball so hard and the affluent, the the wealthy uh, white Silicon Valley, these people who fuck up, as we've seen with, uh, I believe, uh, you know, this bank just got bailed out or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't been following it too closely. When they fuck up, they're going to they're going to have somebody scooping in to swooping in to save them. This world doesn't give a fuck about me. No one's going to swoop in to save me. I have to save myself. And I think that's something that I'm not going to let go of because I I know what the other side of it is. So I think collectively we don't give up on that. And we just have to sit here and watch the people who ball so hard and don't have a backup plan. And then, oh, well, yeah, it is bad. The sky is falling. But um, I'm going to stand over here with my umbrella. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, yep. that's what I'm going to do. So moving on so many great things or not great things, so many uh, hard things, I think also listeners to this podcast, I don't really give trigger warnings. Uh, I put the little checkbox on the episode that says explicit. That is my blanket statement of what it, what you get is what you get. Um, but this episode will kind of cover, um, some heavy topics like domestic violence, sexual assault, colorism, racism, violent, uh, substance abuse. It, it, this book has it all right. 
Um, so one of the things uh, early on in the book that they talk about, I think even in this first section, I will say that you, if you're reading this book, you'll change your mind about her mom a lot of different times with the way that she tells the story because, and I, I, it's a sign of a good storyteller. And I will say, I've only really seen this in, we've done a couple of memoirs on here on this mental health book club. Not everybody is a dynamic storyteller. Jamel Hill, I've not, I don't know if she's written anything else, but I'm sure she's written several articles and things like that. But um, the way that she tells a story, you don't really, you may think that you have something figured out, but you don't. And so I'm really appreciating because I'm seeing all these different angles to her mom, which I think is beautiful because at the end of the day, her mom is a traumatized uh, survivor, a person uh, who came through so much adversity. Like the fact that she even lived long enough to have Jamel, you know, and to be at the point that she's at now, like all the things she had to go through. But you, if you're reading the story from the beginning, you're like, oh, she was an addict. She was a single mother. Like you might put her in that box, but I think what I continue to repeat throughout this book club is we can't put people in boxes because we're not supposed to go in a box. We're human. And so we get to see that a lot of the evolution and the, the nuances of the mom. Um, but one of the things that it started off with, it started talked about colorism. And so I'm going to share that section. Quote, my mother had a lot of trouble fitting in when she was a kid. She was badly bullied growing up because of the way she looked, talked, and uh, the school she attended. My mother is light-skinned and at the time had sandy red hair. These features, in addition to her hazel eyes, made her an exceptionally easy target. On her first day of seven, as a seventh grader, my mother got beat up so bad the girls in the girls' bathroom that she cried to my grandmother that she wanted to quit school. The black kids in my mother's neighborhood believed my mother thought she was better than them. And not just because of her light skin. My grandmother was a stickler for good grammar. So my mother didn't talk like some of the other kids. The kids harassed her so much that some afternoons when my mother got off the city bus in her neighborhood, a group of kids would be waiting for her and she'd have to run to escape them. Meanwhile, the white kids intimidated and alienated her because she was black. They taunted her about her, her hair and called her racial slurs. She wasn't black enough for the black kids, and by being black, period, she was an enemy to some of the white kids. Two shitty rocks for my mother to stand between while she was just trying to get an education. And I just wrote in the margins, relatable, because I'm mixed, but I identify as biracial and black. When you know she talked about her mom's experience of being light-skinned and how you're not black enough for the black kids, you're not... Uh, you're clearly not white. No matter what you do, no matter what you what you put out in the world, it's never good enough. It's just this this sh shitty, like literally, like she said, she's like two shitty rocks for my mother to stand between while she was just trying to get an education. Shitty what people do to each other just to literally fucking exist. So yeah, color colorism was one of the things that was kind of uh, that kind of jumped out and related to me. I always think it's weird when people give, especially younger people, a hard time about grammar and the way they talk and things like that. Like, if you come from a predominantly black neighborhood, they'll say you talk white. That's one of the things I hate a lot. And I, I know my sister used to get it all the time. Um, 
she's a straight A student and all this other stuff. And then it would always be like, you talk so white. So because mm-hmm. she's using her education and talking the way it was made to be used, you're going to tell her she talks white. So yeah. I, I think in the black community, we kind of hold on to that. They have this notion that if you talk a certain way, you think you're better than them. Mm. And I don't think that's really the case. It's just once you get to a certain level, you understand you code switch. Mm-hmm. But like, not everybody gets that. It's some people that will never work in corporate America. It's some people that will never have to be put in a situation where they have to code switch. So anybody that does it, they look down upon, which mm. is kind of crazy. Yeah. And I think it's the internalized and and I mentioned the colorism. Well, colorism is racism within Black people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's external too. Like if you look at say the the beauty industries or fashion or something like that, like the models, if they are of color, they're of a light skin color. They're you know they don't pick dark girls. But I think it comes like that with grammar and education and stuff like that too. Like especially since in my case, you know, being biracial, I was raised by um, a single parent who was the white half, and the the response again. It, it, as a kid trying to make sense of it is so weird. Like to this day, like as an adult, like trying to understand what I went through is just interesting, but the whole, will you talk white and I'm in, and then trying to navigate that between also trying to figure out, well, what am I like, because everybody else is so pressed about how I identify or what I look like or how I talk or whatever. And it's like, well, do any of us really know who we are? Like we're in elementary school. Like, I just want to read the boxcar children and, you know, make it to lunch. <laughs> right. that's, that's all I'm really worried about. So I think, you know, when we, it, within the Black community, we we say those things like, oh, well, you talk white, we're policing each other. But I, from the, the bird's eye view of that, I'm like, well, that's just the systemic racism doing its thing, right? That's truly the the end game of systemic racism is to have us hate ourselves. Right. And literally make ourselves deteriorate. Uh, we were talking about that. I want to say it was last week with the end of our last uh, book club talking about like if we, you know, how self care is a, a is an act of rebellion. You know, if if we don't do that, especially in the the face of like you know oppression and stuff like that, we don't make it. And that's the point of the oppression is for us to give up. You know. So we have to do those things not because of uh, a luxury, but because we have to still be here. And but yeah, policing how we talk and the code switching stuff is I don't know. I, I go back to like I said earlier, the respectability politics is just exhausting. So let's I guess the thing about this section is her her mom really went through it. Like yeah. um and I'm gonna share snapshots of it, but I'm gonna share this one thing and the trigger is, yes, I'm about to talk about sexual assault, but it. I think my commentary on it is more so that this is a normal occurrence, the way that it was handled uh, within Black communities. And if, first of all, the whole premise of this podcast was to speak on mental health from a perspective of uh, being specific for communities of color, and I think we don't talk about this stuff enough. 
So I'm glad that Jamel Hill pointed it out. Um, and unfortunately, her mom was sexually assaulted several times. And she kind of comments later on to like how it basically is PTSD at this point, you know, but anyway, here we go. Quote, before my uncle Norman intervened, my mother told my grandmother about the abuse and my grandmother chose not to believe her. A horrible betrayal that set their relationship on a course that they could, couldn't seem to steer away from. It was hard for me to grasp that my grandmother chose an abuser over her own daughter. But sadly, what my grandmother did wasn't uncommon. People often hide and make excuses for abusers in their own family. Survivors have been called liars by family members, friends, and others who choose not to believe them because they often can't face the unthinkable. My grandmother couldn't accept that her own brother had sexually abused her child. She couldn't face that the reason he had access to my mother, the reason his abuse continued for years, was because of her. End quote. Literally, I would say 80% of the Black women that I see for therapy have this exact story where they've been sexually assaulted and the family member didn't believe them or their experience was brushed under the rug. And on top of that, in these examples that uh, Jamel Hill shares about sexual assault um, or attempts, because um, an attempt also, uh, I believe, happened with her, the police don't give a fuck mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're a Black woman. Or the common outcome was that you file a report and you never hear anything. Right. Yeah. So any commentary on that one? So I'm glad that her other uncle finally stepped in because it was clear that the grandmother wasn't going to put it into it. Unfortunately, like you said, there's so many households that go through this where people feel like, oh, um, you got to protect Black men. You can't let them be held accountable for their actions when it comes to stuff like this. But you were screwing your kid up potentially for life by allowing this to happen and not believing them. And then you wonder why these same people don't come talk to you when there's something going on because you Mm -hmm. were supposed to trust them. You were supposed to protect them from this. They came to you and you chose somebody else that was doing this horrible thing because you wanted to keep them safe. And you'll be like, Oh, this is family business. Let's not let it get out. Let's brush it under the rug. And it's, it's not right. And like you said, it's so many black women. Mm -hmm that have gone through this, that will continue to go through this until it's finally understandable that this is not something we should do. I mean, even looking at the way women defend R. Kelly, even now, with all the horrible stuff he has done, and it's just like, oh, but, 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 it's the girl's fault. Why were they so fast acting? They're kids, first of all. Children. He's a grown man. Hold him accountable for his actions. And I think part of it is they don't want to hold these abusers accountable for their actions. It's much more uh, appealing for them to blame it on the young girls, mm-hmm. which I never understood that logic. So it it bothers me a lot. And unfortunately, like you said, her mother went through this so many times. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I mean, granted, I... I guess as a occupational hazard, I observe and study human behavior. The only thing I can gather as a possible explanation of why this whole like protect black men thing is still even a conversation is because again, it always comes back to systemic 
racism, but slavery destroyed generational understanding of family structure. So in slavery, black men were breeders. You're, you're there for a purpose and you can be shipped around, you know, a father was not necessarily able to be consistent by design. And so you get into reconstruction and emancipation. And it's not like you just all of a sudden, oh, let's, let's just have a happy, you know, family structure, right? So it's that. And then I think it within our communities of, you know, the black community, it's the, oh, well, first of all, Slavery was just repackaged as mass incarceration, which is where all the black men are now. And so when there are black men who are not incarcerated or dead, we must protect them, right? Because there's so few, it's a scarcity, right? And so that's why we get all of these, you know, people, which is weird to me, like, to this, the number of people I unfollowed and deleted playlists and songs from who were Dick Ryden, uh, Tory Lanes over shooting Megan, the stallion. Uh, for those listening, Google it if you don't know what I'm talking about. And it, it's basically like the the victim blaming of the woman, because how dare you? Uh, and then the the arguments that you see online is like, oh, well, he's already, you know, uh, this conviction is going to make him uh, be deported and going to put him, you know, in jail because he's already got so many counts and stuff like that. But all of it was, did this woman ask to be shot in her feet? Nope. Did did anything she did to him less, uh, if she did anything to him uh, short of shooting this man in his own feet, don't shoot her. How about right. that? You know, but we, everybody, like truly the number of people who, and, and the thing is, it's black women too, who will defend a black man over a black woman. It's so Absolutely. weird. And I have to, so bringing it back, I'm like, it has to, you know, going back to, okay, how I study human behavior, how I look at the connection point. The only thing I can think of is there's a scarcity of black men because of by design, the system is not set for us to thrive and to function because it wants to oppress us. All the black men are gone. So the, the few that are around, they automatically get the badge of black excellence, even though it's black mediocrity. And we just, we, we, advocate for them no matter what and again not i (laughs) i'm not subscribing to that like it's so disrespectful for the amazing black men that are actually out here being active fathers active participants in their neighborhood that are not carrying on this nonsense why are you Mm -hmm. putting them in the same categories of these people that are doing these horrible things everybody Mm. that goes to jail does not deserve a free mike t-shirt mike might deserve to be in jail is he a rapist did he murder somebody then let him sit in jail it's like we can't pick and choose what we want to be okay with, but hold every other race to it. If a white guy did the same thing, all these people would be up in arms saying, put him in jail. But because Tory was black, oh, free Tory. He shouldn't be there. Had this mm-hmm. been another celebrity, Machine Gun Kelly, it would be put him in jail. So we yeah. can't pick and choose what we want to do. There are some amazing African-American men out here who are absolutely pillars in the community those are the mm. people that should be protected if you want to have this discussion by all means but all black men do not deserve the same the ones level who are protection. dying on their ways home from work just trying to get home to their families but they right. were driving while black you know exactly who, the those are the people who we should 
get behind. And so I think in the context of this, you know, obviously her relationship with her mom is very like complicated um, as we, we learn throughout this section. But then moving on kind of on the same vein, we have domestic violence, which is a recurrent theme and also generational, right? Um, so we're seeing a lot of generational curses through her telling of her her family story. So with domestic violence, it's I'm gonna read this. It's gonna sound funny, but she she puts the sense of humor on it, but it's a dark sense of humor, but those who get it get it. So quote, my mother and father moved to Oakland in 1975, the fantasy they created of what life would be like for them there never materialized. In fact, it was I was the only thing that worked out for them in Oakland. My dad also was such a heavy drinker that he kept a pint of liquor in his back pocket, never got his life together there like he or my mother had hoped. He and my mother began to fight on a regular basis. And I don't mean just verbally. They sometimes got into physical fights and my mother never backed down. If my father hit her, my mother hit him right back. That's how most of the women in my family had been taught to deal with physical abuse from an intimate partner. Just fight back harder and don't put yourself in a position where they can get the better of you. My grandmother once tried to smother my grandfather, my mother's father, to death with a pillow when he was passed out drunk. And I'm going to give a side note. She tried to kill him two other times as well. Uh, one time, I want to say that the, the, the gun jammed or something. Um, she really did not like him. But anyway, Back to this. One of my great aunt Jean's boyfriend started choking her and my mother had to throw water on him to get him to loosen his grip around her neck. When my great aunt escaped from under him, she and my mother commenced to whooping his ass. He never touched her again. My second stepfather, William, once raised his hand like he was going to strike my mother and she charged him and bit him in the stomach so hard she broke the skin. My mother almost never started the fights, but she certainly didn't have a problem ending them, end quote. And I'm just saying, I shared that when she, uh, of course, when she's sharing it, there's some humor to it and how she like worded it. Um, but domestic violence is part of the course, uh, unfortunately. Um in a lot of homes, but especially I think when you're growing up under oppression, uh, in poverty, in certain situations, and uh, a theme that I noticed with um, Jamel Hill's mom is that she had a survival complex, kind of a different one than what I described earlier on with that whole, like, when you grow up broke, you have a hard time not acting like you're broke. Reason that she had to be in a relationship and the relationship had to provide her necessities. Um, so oftentimes she would be in a position where she was using men to get what she needed to survive. But oftentimes with that, the trade-off was uh, being mistreated. You have some thoughts. Um, I just remember the quote that apparently the uh, the mom used to tell her. And I don't know if I want to necessarily say the quote out loud. but uh, Go ahead it and say was, it. It was like, why let a man with a wet dick lay up with you when the rent's not paid? And I was just like, well, Hey, I guess I, I highlighted that one. And I mean, I understand if you feel like you're having trouble making ends meet, why bring it somebody else to the table that's also gonna make you have trouble with the ends meeting? I mean, so I kind of yeah. guess I understand where it was coming from, but it's sad that that was the, the mindset and not actually looking for like love, I guess, is yeah. what it comes down to. 
But she also learned from a very young age that, unfortunately, like I shared earlier on about like her mom being molested at a very young age, and then her own mother didn't defend her. So she learned, okay, if I'm going to be objectified, I mean, this is internalized. This is not like something that she just chose as she's being uh, abused to be like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to use my body to get what I need. You know, it was something repeatedly over and over being traumatized. It's like, okay, well, damn, I'm, you know, she's bullied at school because she's too light. You know, she, she's, you know, can't catch a break with, you know, her own personal safety and things like that. And no wonder why she has PTSD and is in constant, you know, cycles of, you know, toxic relationships and drug addiction and all of this stuff. Like the person is like constantly being like riddled with adversity, you know, a person can only take so much. And just for the listeners, I mean, both of her biological parents dealt with addiction. Uh, The stepfathers that came in the picture ended up dealing with addiction or they had their own demons. You know, it was like everybody had something. And I think during this time period, that was pretty much probably typical of Detroit. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, they were struggling for people to find jobs. The unemployment rate was super high. Um, Mm -hmm. You had the whole crack epidemic happening in mm-hmm. that era where you had these famous names like white boy rick and all these mm-hmm. uh you had um big meats and all these people that were probably players around some of these times coming in and making money selling drugs so the drugs yep. were making money for some people and creating havoc for other families destroying them because people yep. couldn't find their way out of the this year. so yeah and then I think the her experience, Jamel's experience of all these men, you know, coming into her mom's life, of course, she resented it, but also needed to survive, you know, she's the only child. And so it's like that weird space between like, well, I need my needs to be met. But I also see that what my mom is doing is like, at the very end of the chapter five, she, and I'll, I'll read it here. She said, however, these were devastating circumstances for my mother to accept. She la- later shared with me how humiliating our new living arrangement was for her. We had been through plenty of tough times, but my mother felt like a failure because she had to marry someone in order to give, she had to marry someone in order to give me a chance at a decent life. Every time she saw me asleep on that mattress in the living room, she was reminded of her failure. This triggered a deep depression within my mother, and I was totally clueless. So um, that was just as a, as a kid growing up, seeing this, you're you're trying to make sense of it. There was an example in there where she she had a diary, basically um, one of her outlets in which she learned. I think I highlighted it somewhere, but basically she learned that an outlet for her would be that she could write. You know. Uh, she was a reader and a writer, and I can relate with that because I I devour books and I I write, um, and they're very therapeutic to me. But she's just writing in her diary, you know. And her mom wasn't respectful of privacy, uh, as most uh, black parents the, are. The black parents are. They're like you in my house, ain't no privacy. Like the fuck. Um, and she reads the diary and Jamel was unfiltered in her diary. She's like, what, 14 years old or something like that. And she was talking about how her mom was uh, sleeping with the, the, the older man that 
she was the caregiver for, you know, and she wasn't wrong, but her mom beat her ass and literally put her out and, you know, like telling the truth hurts. But, you know, Jamel had to make sense of this dynamic of, okay, I need these things to survive. The way that my mom goes about doing it doesn't feel right. And she's trying to, no, no one's around being like, oh, go to therapy or have a safe place to talk about your stuff. It's almost like every time you try to have something to offset the adversity that you're experiencing, it's like, oh no, black people don't do that. So what are your thoughts on that, Nita? I know I saw your face when I mentioned the the diary situation. Um, It's very interesting because I think she had wrote something in there like, um, wanting to like drop kick her mom or something was I feel like oh, yeah. most teenagers probably go through a situation where they're mad with their parents and thoughts come like that. It's it's gonna mm-hmm. happen. So the fact that her mother basically chased her out the house and she was scared to go back in the house, it was just like that's something that happens for sure. But to drop her off at her dad, knowing that the dad one doesn't have his own place. Mm-mm. Two was still pretty much probably fresh in his recovery of not being on drugs anymore. Yep. Like not able to take care of her. Exactly. So it I think what it does is paints paints a picture for Jamel, like, you know, um I have to do something for myself so I'm not in this type of position long term. I don't mm-hmm. wanna have to feel like when I'm an adult. Like, I have to depend on men to help me make ends meet. I don't want to feel like I don't have a safe place because the mom was literally, like you said, sleeping with various men to have a place to live. Mm -hmm. And not only that, you're watching your mom do drugs in the process. That can't be good for your mental health as a kid. So the fact that, like you said, she tried to pin it in her journal, her mom read the journal, and then it's this big to-do, like, where do you go from there? I'm sure we'll continue to unpack it. To my understanding, her mom is still alive, right? Um, I want to say, I know that the grandmother passes away. Grandmother passes away. I think her mom is still alive. And she just talks about like that relationship and how it's, you know, kind of, she's given the backstory. But while we see, of course, she's, uh, the mom is in active addiction, but she's also holding down jobs like while doing it like so she's like very you know we see a whole cast of like functioning addicts throughout the story which just makes it all the more like if you're listening to this podcast and you're like should i read this book absolutely read this book it's fascinating but like while her mom is in her well like the the re that's one thing and, and i've worked with many folks who have addictions especially early on in my career it's not really what i focus on now because it takes a special uh, level of patience and skill set and i no longer have that so i focus my attentions elsewhere but an addict is the most resource resourceful person you will ever meet if you know need to know how to solve a problem i bet you that the things that they can do to get what they need is they, like, they will figure out a way the fact that she was making friends with people that were like dying of cancer so she had access to pills i was just like she's like i'm gonna clean your me? house you know just run me a couple of them pills um she had a, she had all the connections because i told you there's a lot of nuance to her mom so even in listening to this podcast you think you have her mom figured out but you don't because i'm about to share something with you that will 
flip it on its head. So basically going back to the tendency to young black girls, and we're going to get into that whole, what you were saying, Nita, about looking at these girls as fast because of how they're perceived or their development and stuff like that. But also the tendency towards them being sexually victimized and there not being any justice. But I also, more importantly, in sharing what I'm about to share is to show how despite her addiction, despite her uh, vices and her limitations, her mom also fiercely loved her and advocated and was not going to let anybody fuck with her. Quote, I got a glimpse of that unknown friend and I remember the way he eyed me, made me immediately uncomfortable. He gazed up and down my body like I was a fully grown woman, not a 14-year-old child. My mother later told me that this creep told her She could get as high as she wanted for free on one condition. She had to let him have me. I'm sure in his line of work, he had encountered many women who unfortunately wouldn't have hesitated to let him violate their daughters for free drugs. My mother, however, was not the one. She told him that if he came anywhere near my room, I was asleep when he offered his proposal. She would kill him and everyone in the room. That guy could have killed her, beat her up, or done any number of things to her and taken what he wanted anyway. But even at her worst, my mother would give her life for mine, end quote. I had to bring it back because as many uh, challenges that she went through with her mom's addiction, there's it's undeniable that despite all of that, her mom really did love her and does love her, you know? Like, like you said, it's hard to like, pinpoint her mom per se but i definitely think her mom is part of the reason that she is who she is today as far as hustling to make it up the ranks of different journalism publications because i feel like her mom Mm -hmm. always found a way it might not have been the most ideal way or ideal living situation but the fact that they were never flat out like homeless homeless Mm -hmm. she said that our lights were never turned off like um now granted the lights were never turned off, but you're living in a roach and rat infested home. Right. But she said, like, there were certain things that her mom absolutely wouldn't allow to happen. She overcame a lot. She did. And I think so. I was looking up her mom when we were talking about she's still alive. So, yeah. And apparently the mom and her were on Red Table Talk. So now I feel like I have to go back and watch Ooh. that because it was last year. So definitely feel like I have to go see what they're talking about because they talk about some of the sexual assaults that happened for Mm -hmm. the mom and i'm just like i bet exactly after i finish reading that that's going to be something very very nice to add to watch to this to see exactly what they have to say about those incidents Mm -hmm. send me the link when you find it definitely will Um, but to add to that there's also i think a is an interesting ongoing kind of theme too with because her mom was so traumatized by the number of times she was sexually assaulted throughout her life, she became overprotective and almost like uh, to the point of like annoyance to Jamel. So I'll share an example here. Uh, From virtually the moment I could speak in complete sentences, my mother talked to me about how no one was allowed to touch me, especially in inappropriate places. She told me that if anyone ever touched me, 
in a way that made me feel uncomfortable, I could tell her and she would support me fully. These weren't lessons that she mentioned occasionally. It was constant. She harped on this because her greatest fear was that what happened to her would happen to me, end quote. And this plays out, you know, throughout um, the story. Like uh, her, I want to say her mom was married to somebody who ended up being, you know, bisexual. And, you know, uh, and it was during the time with the the AIDS epidemic and not, not really knowing about how the disease was spread and stuff like that. So it ended up being like that particular person was a stepfather that Jamel was very close with and truly looked at that person as her father. And when that ended, because the mom found out that he was bisexual, they literally like looked at him as like a deviant. And it was kind of that even when she would like go to visit him after the fact, it was kind of like she was like interrogated, like to make sure because the mom had just been through so much. And it was like she just, you know, uh, rightfully so she came by it, honestly, her trust issues, but really just it it almost like resu- resulted in her like uh, pushing people away or almost like uh, demonizing people who were good people because she was hadn't quite dealt with her trauma and, you know, figured it out. So did you have any thoughts on that? Um, for me, that part was like sad. Like, I get it. For a long time, everybody thought that the LGBTQ, especially gay men, were the cause of like the AIDS epidemic, right? Mm-hmm. So when we learned that he was bisexual and that he caught it, when she asked herself, she wonders if he would marry her mom to kind of take that pressure off of him as a black man of people mm-hmm. being like, "Well, are you gay?" and the fact that he created such a bond for Jamil to want to go into sports, created that love of sports and did all this amazing stuff for the mom and grandma to be very suspicious that he would try to molest her because of his sexuality was kind of, you know, heartbreaking. It was just like, okay, this man is going through a lot of stuff in life and he probably loved this little girl to pieces. And you're sitting there thinking he's going to hurt her. But I get it because the mom's past. You're just like, I understand. You've been through yeah. so much. You've been down that road. You've been sexually assaulted. Um, but I was just sad for Jamel to feel like she lost not one dad, but two at this point mm-hmm. because her biological dad was on drugs. So he was out of the picture. And now this guy was gone again. Yeah, a lot. And another thing. I, I think as we like, of course, dig through all of this like trauma and um, adversity, we're getting all of these like relatable, like black experiences and things that within the black community, we just tell each other or that we can like uh, commiserate on. So uh, in chapter four, she says, quote, like so many other women, notably black women, my grandmother was adept at pushing through. It was a lesson she learned from her mother, my great-grandmother, Juanita, and from some of the other women in my family. My mother used drugs to push through. My grandmother used alcohol. Two sides of the same coin. So basically, and and end quote, uh, but basically push through. That kind of goes back to the don't let nobody run you off your job. You know what? It wasn't that bad. It, it All of these things that we 
in our community tell each other it's so toxic and i think what it comes down to is we are traumatized or we're hurt and we settle and we lay down and we say oh you know what it wasn't that bad right and what we do is we generationally pass that down and then that's how the curses keep passing down from generation to generation uh, because we don't know how to deal with what is happening so rather than to do the hard work of saying that was fucked up we repeat it so like trying to explain to a parent that never really had a decent type of income that you're going to leave a job that they feel like pays you a insane amount of money mm-hmm. is hard because they definitely give you like what do you mean you're not happy all that money you're not happy and you kind of look at them like, you know, money doesn't equate to happiness. It's billionaires out here that are depressed. Putting a bullet through their head. So, yeah. yeah. I'm just kind of like, it's frustrating because you understand how much these people have been through. And a lot of them feel like, well, if I just had more money, everything would have been different. I wouldn't yeah. have been stressed out. I wouldn't have been in these positions. But you're just kind of like, that's not necessarily true. Mm. So, I mean, I just think in this first part, it's so much stuff to unpack. Like you said, it's just like, I can only imagine by the time she finally makes it to therapy, how much stuff she has to tell her therapist. Mm -hmm. Like, it has to be an insane amount. Yeah. And that, I'm glad you said that because it brings me to another point I wanted to make. How did that affect Jamel as an adult, right? So seeing all of these things play out and stuff. So on page 48, she says, quote, my husband has told me that I'm extremely hard to read, and this is by design. I have an irrational fear of exposing my feelings because I worry it will weaken me, be used against me, or eventually lead to the same helpless feeling of disappointment that I felt when James walked out of my life. And James is the, I want to say James is the the bisexual stepfather, mm-hmm. uh, if I'm remembering correctly. Her mom had a lot of relationships, so it's kind of hard to keep up with. But she continues, I've gotten a lot better with my husband's gentle but persistent insistence, but this is still difficult for me, end quote. And I will say, this right here is very relatable because my wife is often telling me that she can't read me. Um, and when she said, uh, her husband says it's ex- it, that she's extremely hard to read and that this is by design. I felt that like it was like when I say I'm reading this book and I never knew anything about this woman before I read that she got fired because she called out Trump. When I tell you I'm reading this woman's memoir and I'm not even a sports person or anything like that. When I tell you I read certain passages and I'm like, oh, my God, this I could literally like lift this out of this book and put it in my own story. It's so relatable. And I think when I say that this particular thing is relatable is because when you go through enough, you have trust issues. And we talk about having trust issues and we like think of it as, oh, that's something you need to get rid of those trust issues. I don't necessarily subscribe to that. And maybe I'm a different type of person. I I don't know. Um, I think my clients are doing pretty well. I have several of them and uh, I just celebrated four years of my business. Um, but sometimes I'm like, no, those trust issues actually serve you well and they protect you from some things. So, um, cause they'll come into therapy and be like, yeah, I got trust issues I need to work on. And I'm like, okay, let's talk about it. 
And they'll tell me and I'm like, nope, that's a trust issue. You absolutely should have. Keep those. They, they're they serving you well. But I think going back to Jamel and the present day, sometimes those those guards, those walls, those boundaries that we put up can sometimes self-sabotage us in pushing away people that really do mean well for us. Um, so that whole, your spouse is saying that you're hard to read. My response sometimes, depending on how snarky I want to be is, well, I'm not a damn book. My wife is actually sitting across the room from me, um, folding laundry as we speak. And she completely co-signed that. So what were your thoughts on that? Like these messages that we get as, you know, children or the the people, the adults that we see growing up and how they do relationships having an impact on us as adults. Did, did you take any way, anything away from that? Um. I thought th- I think what really helped me get through some of this is reading the book that we read last month and understanding the different attunement styles, right? So if uh, attachments, attachments yeah. I'm sorry. So if you weren't properly um taught these things as a kid, your needs Secure weren't met, then growing up, you're gonna have issues. You're not gonna trust people. Mm-hmm. You're gonna feel like what why should I trust you? What are you yeah. gonna do to hurt me? And the more and more you think about what you go through, what you watch other people go through and you see how they respond. Sometimes somebody lashing out at stuff all the time is because they never felt safe as a kid. So mm-hmm. their mindset is I'm going to hurt somebody before they hurt me. It was a time maybe people would be upset with themselves, but I'm like, once you start understanding there's probably a root cause to the way you're reacting, it probably didn't just pop up out of the blue. And yeah. so more people are ready to actively go to therapy and work on their stuff. I think we're going to see issues, but I think the younger generation is more willing to go try different methods to fix those generational curses that have been passed down from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. So, And as a therapist working with a lot of teenagers, it is quite the journey because in order to get to, well, you know, of course, teenagers will reach out, but I got to get the parents to fill out the paperwork and stuff like that. And then being in the position of talking to this kid for an hour and then knowing that they have to go back to the environment. Oftentimes I'm in a position where, you know, advocacy is not, you know, joining a march. It's advocacy is, you know, having a, a tough conversation with this parent about a trend or a, a pattern or an environment that I'm seeing that is negatively impacting and really happen to like point face it to them. It's like, you're paying me a lot of money to talk to your kid. It does, you know, well, like I've literally had to stand on that hill before and say, I've even gone to the person's chart before and said, you've paid me this many thousands of dollars over this many sessions and literally said, okay, do you want all of that going down the drain? Because it has hit my account and has been spent. Okay. I've earned my money. What I'm telling you is if you keep doing X, Y, and Z, they will keep needing to come back here. I'm not afraid to say that because sometimes the kids get it. The kids totally get it. And my job is to provide them with a safe space and stuff like that. But then to go to the generation before them, not to tell them, hey, because I'm a therapist, I know everything about parenting and I know exactly how to tell you how to, that's not even what I try to do. But it's a really interesting thing. And oftentimes it's easier to say, 
fix my kid, don't bother me, than it is to say, I'm going to send my kid here, but I'm also going to take some feedback. It's really interesting. It's very hard to break generational curses because people avoided it because it was easier just to like press down, but then it pops up in the next generation and we want to act like it's a surprise, you know? And I think if we bring it to, you know, blackness, we literally have epigenetics kicking our ass, you know, because we have hundreds of years of ancestors who were literally being traumatized on the daily, you know, our whole fight, fight or freeze, you know, self-preservation senses are all over the place. And then we have to deal with the the adversities right in front of us, let alone just existing identity. Like it's a mess. And it's, yeah. Let me share one more relatable thing, and then I'll go to like a positive thing that I I really like from this section. So on page 71, she talks about how basically in her senior year of high school, she moves out of her mom's house and goes to live with her grandmother, which again, relatable to me, because when I tell you, I could just take sections out of here and it's my story, right? Like same thing happened to me. And then she went after that year, she went to college, right? Um, so I'm just going to share this and let it be what it is quote besides, or she said, besides by that time, I was so consumed with prom graduation and preparing for my freshman year at Michigan state. That's why I wasn't as aware when my mother started spiraling out of control. Again, my mother had already kicked her heroin habit cold Turkey at my grandmother's house years before for a time, her pill usage had also calmed down considering considerably, but it seemed to be picking back up again. But things were different now because I wasn't living with her. I was creating my own life for the first time ever. I didn't have to navigate her addiction anymore. And living with my grandmother gave me the luxury of not being absorbed by my mother's problems. End quote. Goddamn. I literally, throughout high school and middle school, had to deal with, and I, it's only this podcast, it's only this mental health book club where I'm even like coming to awareness of some of this shit and like speaking about it in a public space for like the first time. But yeah, my mother went to jail for stealing. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother, um, you know, basically got in trouble. Uh, this is before they were really tracking like opiate prescriptions like that. Uh, where you could be tracked in a system of where you filled prescriptions and stuff. So she was like doctor shopping and getting pain pills and that there were, she would go out like clubbing and getting drunk and stuff like that. I remember I had a learner's permit and one of her party friends called my phone, my 15 year old teenage phone, right. uh, That I had earned from working my own job telling me that my mother was puking in a parking lot at a club and I drove without a license with the learner's permit in the middle of the night to pick my drunk mother up, you know, those sorts of things. And like, I moved out of that environment and lived with my grandmother for my senior year of high school. And then I went to college and I think college was, I always knew that college was going to have to be a thing for me because it was, I saw that, okay, I need education. Of course, on the other side of academia, I see that there was a lot of, you know, oh, they make all these promises and stuff like that. Academia and education and degrees don't really get you what you thought. However, they've opened doors for me. So I, I won't say like, oh, I, my, it was worth every penny because it wasn't. Um, however, I knew that education and 
going that route was going to be my escape route so that I didn't have to settle for the meager opportunities that my grandmother and my mother had, you know? So when I read that, I was like, it was very relatable because she talked about that piece. And I shared the quote earlier was like a lot. She had said, well, people, folk, black people, especially you will hear talk all the time, legacy, generational wealth. And I get it. I get the importance of it because we don't have it because systemic racism, because of the institutions that were set for us to fail. Like, I get it. I get wanting to have legacy and generational wealth and all that. We don't really have that. And if you can create that, I talked about that in the last uh, book club. If you can create that, more power to you. But peace and peace of mind now in this life, in this burning planet, in this trash country, I'm going to go for that for right now. Because I don't know what this whole generational wealth thing. Like, yeah, I'm going to put money in my retirement fund. Make no mistake about that. But the whole like legacy and multiple generations down the road, honestly and truly, with the way climate change is set up, I don't know how many more generations we got. But having peace right now and being able to break the generational curses now, that's what I'm looking for. And so her sharing this right here, I think, um, I, I hope other people find this and are like, oh my goodness, especially young people. Um, imagine like how she felt like when she was talking about like she's a teenager and she didn't have anybody to like vent to or something and oh, her man. journal was her safe place until it wasn't. Like being able to... You know, just a young person being able to read this and know that there's hope, I think is going to, it's very powerful. So I just needed to share that part. Got it. Fair enough. I mean, I think she is a a very good writer. Like I knew she was a good writer before going into this from her columns. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wasn't, I don't know if I was expecting this memoir to be this good. So. Mm-hmm. I, I've enjoyed the fact that I've had a hard time putting it down. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's kind of up there with the the caliber of. I mean, they're completely different memoirs and different stories and stuff. But it's it's giving the the enjoyment I got out of Prince Harry's book. Yeah. So, which was I, I've said it before. That was my favorite one so far um, on this book club. So, so bringing it back to books right? Because if you know me, you know, I love books. I wanted to share this little thing about because she is an avid reader and writer, right? Like those were her like little escapes and the things that she determined she was good at, right? And obviously it worked out for her. But quote, I'd always been an avid reader. um, So writing came naturally to me. I love language and storytelling. I often got so lost in books. I pictured myself in the world of whatever book I was reading. I imagined myself as the characters. Writing also represented possibility. I could create whatever world I wanted. And so then she goes on to give an example. So she said, so naturally, my very first book was about a group of hotshot lawyers who worked at a prestigious law firm in Los Angeles. Basically, I wrote a less sophisticated version of LA law, but all my characters were black. Blair Underwood was the only main character on LA law that was black. And it inspired me to create a much blacker reality in my book. As much as I love the characters on the real L.A. law, I couldn't relate to most of them. I wanted a world where black people lived just as unapologetically as white people. I needed to believe that there were black people out there who were well off 
carefree, and fabulous. In my real world, most of the Black people I knew were working class, lived paycheck to paycheck, and stressed about their own survival. Many of them were dealing with all kinds of abuse, sexual, substance, and physical. I saw Black people who were broken. I needed to believe that that wasn't all we were, that we could also be vibrant and joyful, end quote. So I really like that. Um, I like that she found her escapes through um, books and through being able to write at this recording. I think I have three or four different books going at the same time. So um, I I love me some books too. And I also write a lot. Like um, those those are my escapes and those are things that keep me grounded and balanced. But I think from a book standpoint, you can escape into either you know, if it's fiction, you can like escape into a story. If it's a memoir, you can put yourself in somebody else's shoes for a little bit. I don't know. It resonates with me. So uh, when someone talks about their love for books or writing, it just gives me the warm fuzzies. So I just wanted to end on that one because obviously in this episode, we've talked about some heavy stuff, you know, um, all the things that you typically give a trigger warning for. Um, it's definitely in this memoir, but um, there are... She's a good writer. Like, that's why I said, like, you can tell a story and it could just be the story, but she tells it from a dynamic, different angles and like turns it so that it's not exactly what it seems, you know? And I think that that's what's setting her apart so far in reading this. So um, were there any like points in this, uh, this section of reading that uh, we didn't get to that you wanted to share about or any like takeaways so far? Um, I think we touched on just about everything I had. Um, maybe the only thing we didn't touch on directly was the her actual experience with the uh the lady's son where she mm. was in the attic. Uh and the guy tries was, to yeah uh, sexually assault her and like I was just so glad that the mom had instilled in her if something doesn't feel right, you get away. Yep. And the fact that the la- other lady didn't believe her was ridiculous yep. to me. So. Yep. Her mom pulled up so fast mm-hmm. when she heard about it. Um, and that's, I think, that's like the the interesting thing is like, despite all her mom's problems and things like that, she taught her daughter, if something like this happens to you, I'm going to believe you. And she backed it up. Yeah. And I wish it was more parents that uh, were willing to do that for their kids. Oh, yeah. I've said it before. I'm I'm ready to fight for my daughter. So I just realized I forgot one thing. So listeners to this podcast, don't be mad at me. So I thought I was ending off on like the warm fuzzies or whatever, but I gotta I gotta circle it back because this is important. She has a whole chapter in here called His Will, which uh, there's also another chapter where she's she's like talking to God, but she's not really. It's not like super religious like that. But I put in the margins as I highlighted a couple of passages here, church hurt. Um, and I call it that in therapy is basically um, oftentimes doesn't necessarily have to be the Christian church, but just some sort of organized religion that ends up hurting people. And again, between black people brushing domestic violence, sexual assault, trauma under the rug. Um, and when they find me in therapy, it's like the first time that they're able to unpack it. Church hurt is another one of those big ticket items. Like people try to say, oh, this can't be a bad thing. And oftentimes, and I will preface this by saying, I know that for some people, 
uh, church and spirituality is a big component and a protective factor for managing their mental health. And I'm not going to take that away from those people. However, the church in its organized form is filled with humans who are broken. Uh, humans are imperfect. And there's, there's with organit, with being organized comes the great power to harm. And so I just want to share a couple of snippets about Jamel's interpretations of church hurt. And then I'll kind of stop it there. So uh, I saw one more little flag and of, of the highlights that I had. And I was like, oh, no, we will not miss this. Because again, it resonates so deeply with me. And I think it resonates deeply with a lot of people. So quote, but it was exhausting. And even during those times when I was immersed in my faith, there were doubts that I couldn't shake, questions I had, and hypocrisies I couldn't quite ignore. So much of the messaging in churches is centered on sex and fornication, but that message seemed as if it were only directed at girls and women. In a few of the churches I attended throughout my life from time to time, a male member of the church would pop up with a baby out of wedlock, and nobody said a word. Yet, when it was a woman, particularly a younger one, they were not spared judgment. Often, there would be whispers about leaders in the church having relationships with female church members, and some of those leaders would be married. Everybody just pretended none of that was happening. There were other conflicts that bothered me, too. Could I not love God and love my gay and trans friends, some of whom were like family to me, and believe that their humanity is not conditional and that they deserve the same freedoms, access, and choices that heterosexuals enjoy? Could I not love God and believe that a woman has the right to choose if she wants to have an abortion? Over time, I realized my problem was not with God. It was with humans and their interpretation of the Bible, mostly how they used it to manipulate people. End quote. So I'm going to leave that one there for you listeners. Uh, not even going to comment on it um, because she said what she said. That was actually not a continuous quote. Um, I actually highlighted and skipped around within that section, but I was very careful in how I pieced that together. But that entire chapter really spoke to me because I've, I've very much uh, have quite a bit of church hurt um, as well. And I think a lot of people can relate with that. So this book is good. I'm, I'm glad that we selected it for this month. And I'm looking forward to what the next conversations will have for next week. Listeners, if you're following along, we're going to be doing chapters six through chapters 10. So that's page 74 through 131 if you're following along in the book. So definitely check back next week for that discussion. But until next time, uh, thank you for listening and take care. Thank you for listening. Before you go, consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode show notes. You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.